efforts. So um, without further ado, I really would like to welcome Professor Jackson. Thank you. Thank you, Fiona, for that incredibly kind uh, invitation. Thank you for inviting me to come to Brisbane. It's a, a huge honour to be here. And thank you to all of you for coming this evening. So, um, 22 years ago now, I published a book which I planned to write as a bit of a quasi-textbook, setting out what the law was that applies to human reproduction. So, what's all about abortion, contraception, etc. Um, what it turned into during the process of writing was not a textbook, but what you might describe as a bit of a rant um, <laughs> in favour of reproductive autonomy. I'll tell you a bit about how that happens uh, in a bit. So, um, Tina has, has mentioned the, 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 the impetus for revisiting this was um, I was asked to contribute a chapter to a book on leading works in health, um, law, and ethics. And so I was given this really interesting task of finding one academic work that's made a difference to you um, over your career. When you're as ancient as me, that means there's quite a lot to choose from. Um, but I decided on a book, actually not by a lawyer, by an anthropologist called Sarah Franklin, who wrote a book um, called Embodied Progress in the 1990s, drawing on interviews and anthropological research she'd done in fertility clinics, really in the early years of IVF. Um, so, obviously, I then had to reread Sarah's book, and that made me think it might be interesting to, to go back and reflect on what's happened um, in the past 22 years. So, has there been progress? Things got better. Has there been the opposite? Have things got worse? Or, and have there been perhaps different or unanticipated issues that have arisen? Um, so I'm going to run through uh, quite a broad spectrum of issues and just reflect on some things where I think things have got better, some things where I think they've got worse, and some things where I think something new has, um, or unanticipated, which has arisen. And I want to start off with abortion, where there's been a bit of a complete reversal since I uh, wrote this book um, 20 odd years ago. So in 2001, abortion was illegal in the Republic of Ireland. Um, the Eighth Amendment of the Irish Constitution recognised an equal right to life for the pregnant woman and the unborn. Whereas in the US, abortion had been a constitutionally protected right since uh, 1973 in Roe versus Wade. Now obviously there have been some restrictions um, since Roe, but um, states were not allowed to place an undue burden on women's right to abortion. And that's been completely reversed. So in the Republic of Ireland, the Irish Constitution can be changed, and it was changed, following the repeal of the Eighth um, Campaign and referendum. And now, although there are some restrictions, abortion is lawful in Ireland, um, there are still issues with access, particularly for women from some parts of the country, and particularly in some rural areas. But nonetheless, abortion is now lawful in, um, in the Republic of Ireland. Whereas, as you know, in the US, Roe was overturned in Dobson Jackson last year. I wanted just to draw attention to three issues in relation to the Dobbs decision, which I think are perhaps particularly interesting. Um, the first is that it, the judgment relies on originalism. And that's the idea that if a right isn't actually mentioned in the text of the Constitution, it can be recognised only if it's part of the deeply rooted traditions of the nation's history. 
Um, what this does is effectively freezes rights in time. So the 14th Amendment, the Privacy Amendment, on which Rome was based, was passed in 1868, uh, 51 years before women could vote, 96 years before the Civil Rights Act. And so what the Dodds judgment is really doing is saying there's no effective way for the courts to update the rights that were set down so long ago. So it's kind of anti-progressive. But something that I think is really interesting about reliance on originalism is that originalism is often thought of as an example of judicial restraint. So you derive rights neutrally from the text of the Constitution. Judges don't make law if it's, it's just deriving it neutrally from the text. But actually, I think you could argue that the Dobbs judgment is part of a deeply value-laden and deeply political project over the last 40 years. So in 1980, the Republican Party stood on the platform of appointing judges who might be willing to overturn Roe. So this has been a long time in the making. It's not exactly judicial restraint. The second thing that I think is really interesting in the Dobbs judgment is the use of precedent. So this on the screen here is bizarrely directly from the text of Samuel Alito's judgment of the court. So he's citing a whole series of sources of English common law from many of them from before the United States existed. So this is referred to um, in, in his judgment, but Roe itself is not treated as if it were an important precedent. Um, and I think that's significant. I think after 50 years, I think you could say that Roe had become deeply rooted in the US. One reason why we respect precedence, as you all know, is that people rely on the law being a certain way. They organise their lives in reliance on it being a certain way. And it's obviously a first principle of the rule of law that you like cases should be decided alike. But in Dobbs, um, the, the majority in the US Supreme Court said that women can't have relied on Roe versus Wade because, by definition, abortion decision making is unplanned. So you can't have any reliance on, on the decision. When I read that, I thought, have you actually asked a woman about that? Because I think my own view would be generations of women have organised their lives, relying on the existence of a backstop if they were to experience contraceptive failure. The existence of a, a access to abortion as a backstop, I think, is something that a lot of women have relied on. Um, and, and the final thing that I think is really interesting about the judgment, obviously it depends where you come from in relation to this, but the Supreme Court obviously can overrule itself in the same way as the, the UK Supreme Court can, but it generally should, shouldn't be doing that just because of the change of personnel. Now obviously the reason that the majority gave is that they thought Roe was wrongly decided, but I think to, to outsiders it looks like, very like, this decision is the result of a change of personnel rather than anything changing um, in, in the world. The third thing that I think is really interesting about the Dobbs judgment is the use of sources or evidence from outside the US which um, the US Supreme Court has definitely done before. This was from a death penalty case in which it relied on um, the jurisprudence of another jurisdiction. But Dobbs is strikingly insular. Uh, it doesn't look beyond um, US constitutional law at all. And if you 
doing what it does it looks to the English sources of the English common law from the 13th century but aside from that um, if you look beyond US constitutional law and those ancient sources of English common law, you find some really interesting evidence, which was completely um, not part of the um, not part of the judgment here. For example, there's a really um, a really clear body of evidence that, that shows worldwide that abortion rates are actually higher in countries with restrictive abortion laws. So Abortions per head of population, where abortion is illegal, there are actually more of them um, than in countries with liberal laws. Liberal laws have lower, um, places with liberal laws have lower abortion rates. So even if your primary concern is the life of the fetus, the, the evidence doesn't suggest that, um, that restricted abortion laws are the best way to protect fetuses. Rather, they, they um, mean that women are hurt as well. There's also some really interesting evidence, I'm digressing a little bit here, but I think it's, I was really struck by this, put together by some economists um, involved in a project I was on an advisory board for about um, debt big data. But this was using, um, using global maternal mortality rates and tracking them in line with who's in the White House. And really striking evidence that globally, maternal mortality rate is higher when there's a Republican president in the White House. Um, and it's lower when there's a Democrat president in the White House. The reason for this is something known as the global gag rule. And this is a, a, a rule which says that the aid budgets in the US can't be spent on reproductive care that also covers abortion. So there's a kind of swing in the global gag rule. A Republican president will put it back in force, Democrat president will rescind it. And so you can actually track global maternal mortality and it's higher uh, depending on who's in the White House, which is quite shocking. Um, and final thing on in relation to abortion, the United Nations is clear that denying access to abortion is not just a privacy violation, as in Roe, but that it can also amount to discrimination, it can amount to cruel and degrading treatment, and it can even amount to gender-based violence. So, what is my issue to learn that I think Dobbs is a really, truly terrible decision? Um, now, it's often said in its defence that abortion is obviously a contentious issue, there's reasonable disagreement over abortion, and that apparently the statistics are pointed to that 40% of the US population would identify as pro-life. But actually, I think the, the number of people in the US who would deny an abortion to a child who's pregnant as a result of rape is tiny, and yet, as we've seen, that's what's facilitated by adults. So the next issue I wanted to turn to was policing pregnancy. So when I was working on this in 2001, I was really interested in the fact that while women in the UK couldn't be held legally liable for any harm to their fetus, so there's no legal liability uh, in the UK for, for injury to fetal health, that didn't mean that women were completely free to do whatever they wanted, that there was an increasing emphasis upon women's responsibility for fetal health, through which you could even argue women became self-policing subjects. So even though we know the greatest risk to fetal health is poverty and socioeconomic inequalities, that there was an individualisation of responsibility for poor outcomes of fetuses. And in 2023, What's interesting here is this has gone beyond 
this kind of self-help that provides a pristine environment for your baby type of um, type of uh, advice for women. And our National Institute for Health and Care Excellence has an increasing tendency to monitor and screen women for bad behaviours. So um, I was quite surprised to find out recently that all pregnant women um, in the UK are routinely screened for carbon monoxide. Um, this is in any way to identify women who are smoking even though they're not admitted to it. And it's very, very in practice hard to opt out of this. Um, in theory it's opt in, but it's, it's sorry, sorry, in theory you can opt out, but in practice that's really difficult. Recently, the National Institute of Health and Care has also discussed, they haven't actually decided to do this, but they've discussed whether there should be routine screening of meconium, which is baby's first um, excrement or poo. And the reason for doing that is to pick up alcohol use, um, which um, among women who maybe haven't reported that um, they've been drinking. So it's not enough to ask women if they smoke and drink. There are in the UK now these mechanisms to, um, to screen and monitor. But what hasn't changed um, since uh, in the last 20 years is the removal of heads of pregnant women in public health messaging. Once you notice this, it's amazing how prevalent it is. Um, any information that's being given on newspaper reports about um, public health and um, pregnancy it's never a woman with a face, it's always a headless bump, and that um, continues um, today. Turning to um, childbirth, um, so in 2001, something that I got quite exercised about was how easy it appeared to be in the case law to overrule women's decisions um, during childbirth. Uh, by making a finding that they had lost capacity. So, Childbirth, obviously stressful, painful, and there seems to be a quite, if a woman was saying she didn't want a cesarean section, that the courts would very readily um, overrule that decision essentially by, by making a finding of incapacity and then it's best interest judgment and then the, the, um, the cesarean can go ahead. And actually, again, it's, it's not clear that there's been progress on this. In recent years, there's been rather an alarming development in. UK Court of Protection, this is a court that makes decisions about patients who lack capacity, where the courts have started using anticipatory declarations for women who have capacity. So we're not talking about women who lack capacity, but women who currently have capacity. That uh, the people involved in their care get a declaration that should they lose capacity during childbirth, they can just perform a cesarean session without consent. That's really worrying because there's no need for these. You can get, in UK courts, you can get a declaration of capacity and a declaration for authorising the C-section immediately if you if you need to. They can have, that can happen very quickly indeed. And they don't happen anywhere else. So, to my knowledge, there are no other uh, instances of, of uh, anticipatory declarations of what would be lawful if somebody did lose capacity. And of course, I think in practice, these are potentially discriminatory because they're much more likely to happen for certain groups of women, not um, others. So, in particular, women who have had mental health issues in the, in the past are maybe more likely to be subject to, to this sort of anticipatory declaration. One thing I think that has changed um, in relation to childbirth is the naming of ill-treating women during labour as obstetric violence. This is obviously a controversial 
um, controversial descriptor, and we could, I'm sure, spend ages talking about it. But um, it's not a completely new term. The first the term obstetric virus was first used, I think, in a letter to the Lancet in 1827. Uh, so it does go back a long way, but it's, it's, its recent use, I think, has been an interesting way of naming and the harm that happens to women when um, things are done to them without against their wishes during childbirth. There's something more than just citing convenience that some and describing it as actually violence. Uh, so this is recognised by the UN and legally recognised in some South American countries as well. And I, I suppose the point here is the need to acknowledge that this is a harm and a very serious harm is doesn't solve the issue, but it's a step towards change. And, and there are other instances of that, I think, the idea of naming um, something as a problem as being important. And one of those is shocking racial inequalities um, of women's experiences and outcomes of maternity care. In the UK, really shockingly, black women are four times more likely to die during pregnancy, childbirth, or postpartum. Um, and at root, from the um, investigations that have been into this, that seem to be discrimination and racist attitudes and assumptions. Um, and obviously, you all know that in Australia too, there are much higher instances of things like low birth weight, preterm birth, neonatal mortality in Indigenous women, as well as poorer outcomes for women themselves. Inequalities have also been acknowledged um, and recognised for the first time in the UK in relation to fertility treatment. So the regulator, Human Fertilisation and Regulation Facility, gathered data and reported on this for the first time two years ago. And it found, I think to lots of people's surprise, that outcomes for IVF are worse for people from minority ethnic groups. I think this was a really important recognition that the experience of fertility can intersect with disadvantage in all sorts of ways. So again, this doesn't solve the problem, measuring and acknowledging doesn't solve the problem, but it is a necessary first step to, to engaging with it. Okay, I now want to come on to an issue which actually I felt enraged by in uh, 2001. Uh, I know you can't see the very top of this slide, but this is the preconception welfare principle. I think this was the moment where my um, quasi textbook turned into uh, a rant um, that this provisions, innocuous little provision, just I, I, I thought there was a huge amount wrong with it and I, I still do. It was, the, the, there were two versions of it. The first one um, applied until amending statute in 2008. So the need for a father was replaced in 2008 by the need for supportive parenting. But what this is doing is saying that Fertility doctors shouldn't provide fertility treatment to a woman unless they first take into account of the welfare of any child um, who should be born as a result. Now, the first thing that is enraging about this is that it's completely illogical because what it's saying is you should take into account a child's welfare in order to decide whether that child should exist. And I'm sure there are some children whose parents are so terrible that it would be better for that child if they didn't exist, but there aren't very many of them. So literally, which is obviously reading this as, as, as on the face of the words, it, it suggests that you should be not allowing a child to exist because it would be better for that child 
uh, not to. So there's a sort of illogicality there which um, is, is frustrating. The reason why it was included at all in the first place was that the, when the um, 1990 Act was going through Parliament, an amendment was defeated by one vote which would have confined all fertility treatment to married, and at that time that was male and female married couples. And that was defeated, because that was defeated by just one vote, there was a need to make some sort of concession. So the point of this, the point of the first version, was very much to discriminate against women without male partners. And um, this was the then Lord Chancellor, just like Minister of Justice in the UK, suggesting that what doctors should be doing in cases where women without men approaching for treatment is persuading them not to have children, and that would be the proper job of the doctor, which seems quite shocking um, today, but um, this was the 1990s under the Thatcher government and uh, wasn't exactly a progressive time. Um, but, sorry, I'm losing the case. So it was obviously discriminatory against um, women without men. But the code of practice, HPA code of practice that applies at the time, um, was also enraging for another reason. So clinics, uh, according to what the HPA was asking them to do, were supposed to check if patients would be good parents. So what would routinely happen in consultations is that clinics would um, ask, how many bedrooms do you have? Uh, will the child have a bedroom of its own? Um, what childcare arrangements will you make um, if you go back to work? So this, the way in which this was being applied in practice struck me as really unfair because we don't do this to fertile couples, and there's no correlation between someone having a blocked open tube and being a risk to your children. So it struck me as really opportunistic that we were scrutinising and monitoring this group of people because we could, not because there was necessarily any um, reason to do that. So there has been, I wouldn't say it's completely perfect now, there has been some progress um, since, since 2005, the um, HPA has changed its approach. Clinics now have to carry out a work of child risk assessment, which is a bit better, I suppose, where you just ask, clinics ask to consider whether there's cause for concern that the child will be at risk. Um, so it's not saying would they be good parents, it's is there cause for concern. Now, the government had initially, in 2008, intended to just delete those words, I'll go back to it. Um, including the need of the child, that child for father, so just delete that entirely. But there was a massive outcry, uh, whipped up by the Daily Mail, that what the government were um, trying to do was say that fathers don't matter anymore and children don't need dads. So there was a huge campaign and parliamentarians got really excited about this and said, can't have this, dads are important. Obviously that wasn't what they were really trying to do, but that was how it was interpreted. Uh, there's, what was really interesting about this massive outcry about the deleting the need for a father clause is that um, in practice that clause made no difference in, to women's access to treatment. There have always been clinics in the UK who frankly were willing to take the money of lesbian couples, single women who want treatment. So they take into account the need for a father but they treat them anyway. So that actually had made no difference in practice. Uh, so there was a lot of colour blue about the removal of something that was um, kind of you could say it was cosmetic. Meanwhile, the parenthood provisions that were passed at the same time in 2008 did something really radical and enabled a child to have two female parents legally from birth. But because that, they, that radical real change 
was housed in a bit of the statue which is impenetrable in terms of its statue language. Nobody notices that. So there's a massive outcry about this need for a father symbolizing, and absolutely no no response at all to the fact that a child had two female parents from birth. So on the need for supportive parenting, which was included uh, as a kind of sop to the idea that we were impugning um, that the government was impugning the role of men. Um, the HFA similarly has said there's a presumption that parents will be supportive unless there's an evidence of risk or harm. And there has been a real step change, I think, in attitudes towards female same-sex couples. Now, um, evidence from things like this interview study from quite a few years ago now suggests that female same-sex couples are often regarded as ideal or even superior um, parents. <laughs> Partly because they've thought about it carefully, but clinic staff also often say that they're really committed, obviously, inevitably, to being open with the child about the use of donated gametes, and clinic staff like that a lot. So your willingness to be open about, um, about the conception of using donated gametes makes them ideal. In contrast, in this interview study, what was really interesting is though, same-sex couples were posited as the ideal. Single women were thought of as not ideal because they what came across in this study, they were thought by clinic staff to be a bit odd. And it's really it's a really interesting study in which you've got some women without men who are ideal, some are less ideal. Um, but while attitudes towards female same-sex couples has definitely changed, there's still some discrimination. So it's increasingly common uh, in Australia, I think, as well, certainly in the UK for women to share motherhood, um, and that's to use an egg from one uh, partner while the other um, gestates and gives birth to the pregnancy. And, and that means the child has two biological mothers, one just is gestation and the other is genetic. But in law, that's not possible in English law. Um, only one can be a mother, and that's the, the woman who gives birth. The other mother, even if she's the genetic mother, is registered on the birth certificate as parent too. Uh, not as any sort of mother at all. She also currently has to be screened as if she were an egg donor uh, because the Act define, defines partner um, embryos as embryos created from a man and woman. But I think the government are, are going to change this because this is clearly discriminatory, um, but it hasn't happened yet. For trans parents, patients, the law is uh, really unhelpful. It's not even clear that it's lawful to treat a trans man who still has his reproductive organs because services lawfully can only be provided for the purpose of visiting women to have children. We haven't had a definitive judgment on whether or not that, that um, makes the treatment of trans men unlawful or not. The other issue that affects trans um, patients is that the person who gives birth, even if it is a trans man, is legally the child's mother. Um, and this was challenged um, fairly recently by a trans man who had given birth, Freddie McConnell. Um, and he, what well, he objected to being registered on his son's birth certificate as his mother. But the Court of Appeal said, the mother is the person that gives birth, even if that person is a man. So in England now, we have male mothers. Um, there's also this real non-sequitur in this judgment, because what the court of appeal was saying is it's really important that children need to know who gave birth to them. And of course, that's right. But you could do that by saying gestational parents. Um, you don't have to call them a mother in order to recognise 
that they devastated the child. The next issue also related to facility treatment, um, which isn't entirely new, but I think has changed in the last 20 years, is the consequences of commercialisation. And indeed, people in the UK are even talking about financialisation of IVF as it becomes something that venture capital and private equity buy clinics and sell them on, not in order to treat people, but to make uh, money quite quickly. And so there's been a I think, determined effort by this more commercialised sector to increase the market uh, for fertility treatment. And there are various ways in which people have done this. One is to sell more stuff to patients, uh, and that happens through, particularly through add-on services. So it's not just your IVF, you also have to pay for all these extras that the clinics uh, suggest to you. So selling more stuff to each patient. The second way in which you can increase the market is by selling uh, fertility treatment to people who are not currently struggling to conceive. And obviously egg freezing is a big example there, where every, every pre-menopausal woman who might want to have a baby is perhaps potentially a customer. So you've got a much expanded group of, of people. And this really reminds me of um, a whole debate in relation to the pharmaceutical industry, uh, when they there was a great quote from the CEO of Merck from the 1950s who was bemoaning the fact that they could only sell their products to sick people, which limits the market. And he said one day he wanted them to be like Wrigley's chewing gum and sell to everybody. And of course, we know that the pharmaceutical industry has been quite successful in doing that by creating all sorts of, of new preconditions where you, you take the medication not because you're actually ill, but because uh, it wants to reduce your cholesterol level or whatever. Um, so medicalising and, and increasing the, the number of people who you can sell to is another way of doing this. The other way that clinics in the UK are certainly doing this, I think this is true in Australia too, is selling debt financing options, selling credit essentially to patients. So clinics um, in the UK, if you can't afford to take private treatment, will um, will give it to you anyway and give you credit financing options. So fertility clinics in the UK have become credit agencies as well as clinics. Um, in relation to add-ons treatments, um, in the UK these aren't licensable treatments. So the HFEA powers very limited here. It can't say so you can't do this. Its, it's powers are limited to information provision. And most people think they've done quite a good job of this through a traffic light system. Um, you won't be able to see the text of it. You can probably guess what it is. Green would be there's evidence of efficacy. Um, red would be there's evidence of harm. And the others are some variation of inconclusive or not enough um, evidence. On the right hand side is a list of all of the um, available add ons. And you may notice that none are green. They're all either positively harmful um, or some variation of no evidence, um, not, uh, you don't know whether it's effective or you don't know enough about it. So nothing is green. But if a quick cursory look at some clinic websites suggests that that's not stopping um, clinics from marketing all of these, even though none are, none are known to be effective, according to the HFA. There's no shortage of clinics who make claims of efficacy about these things. For example, you can't see all of the detail here, but give your embryo a helping hand with embryo glue. And it's easy to see why. If you're a patient who's, who's had idea failure, embryo glue sounds like a great idea because it might actually 
and actually help. So overselling has become a really particular issue in relation to fertility treatment. And I think patients, patients are particularly susceptible um, to claims that you might increase the chance of success in um, one treatment cycle. Because one treatment cycle is expensive and if you can maximise the chance of working, then that's obviously a good thing. So recently in the UK, uh, the Competition Markets Authority has issued guidance on consumer law, both for fertility clinics but also for patients, saying obvious things like you mustn't advertise really low headline prices, which increase later. You mustn't make unsubstantiated claims about efficacy, though there are lots of them. Uh, loads and loads of unsubstantiated claims there, so they're clearly doing that. And you mustn't um, hide information. For example, um, like the, the Success of egg freezing will be hugely affected by the woman's age at which she freezes her eggs. You mustn't hide outcomes uh, like that. You should be straightforward with people. But while this guidance, I think, is valuable, something that's definitely true in, in the UK is patients are not used to navigating private healthcare. They're not used to being sold things uh, by their healthcare provider. And certainly, the Competition and Markets Authority is hardly the first place patients are going to look for advice about facility treatment. Um, they're much more likely to look for advice on the internet where they'll, they'll see um, the claims being made by um, the clinics, but also from Facebook and social media where information is almost anecdotal, unreliable. One issue where we haven't made much progress um, since the early 2000s, and I think we really do need to do better on, is in relation to the difficulty patients experience in stopping treatment. I think this is a really big problem um, and um, one we don't do enough about. It's actually quite common now to, to, for patients to use the language of addiction in relation to how hard it is to stop facility treatment. So Jessica Hepburn wrote this uh, very powerful piece some years ago about how hard it was to give up facility treatment. She may be unfamiliar to, to, to you here, but she's a complete force of nature. She did eventually stop treatment. As I said, it's kind Everest, it's on the English Channel, and I get messages from her with pictures of her on some mountain or in the middle of some sea. So she's, she's throwing herself into other things. She's an extraordinary woman. But um, I think she's using language addiction. I think it's really common to see this. Um, people talking about how hard it is to give up. And gambling metaphors, I think, are... Uh, are really common and really interesting and, and gambling addiction I think is a really interesting analogy in relation to the treatment because these are low odds um, and people often keep going even when um, the odds are very low indeed. And gambling is obviously one industry where there is a duty um, to help some clients make less use of your services. In the UK gambling adverts have Phrases like, when the fun stops, stop, try to say, you shouldn't just carry on. And I think this is actually a really important informed consent issue because I think most patients are unprepared for how hard it can be to stop. And this goes back to Sarah Franklin's book, because um, one of the things that was one of the insights from this book, which I thought was very powerful at the time and can be still powerful today, is that a lot of people go into IVF treatment, maybe even feeling a bit ambivalent about it, but thinking either the outcome will be a baby, which would be great, 
But if you don't have a baby, then at least you have some sort of closure. You find everything and you can move on with your life. And what Sarah found in this book is that that closure was really elusive because the fact that treatments had failed wasn't a reason to give up and have closure. It was always something you could tweak, something you could do differently. So, so it was a reason to try again. And um, people would have, during the so many stages of an IVF cycle, people would have little successes along the way. So they might harvest eggs successfully, they might, might fertilise those eggs successfully, there might even be what's described as a chemical pregnancy where you have a positive uh, pregnancy test but there's no um, there's no baby, we're going to have to scan a couple of weeks later. So what Sarah's interviews described was the idea of treadmill, whilst you're on it, it can be really, really hard to get off. And I think we need to be better at talking to people about this and, and, and flagging this to people at the outset. Um, one, one thing that I've, I've seen suggested is that when somebody embarks on treatment, it's a good idea to get them to think about what would be the maximum reasonable number of cycles for them to take. Obviously that's not binding. If they get to cycle six and they still want to do it, they can keep going. But at least it might give them pause for thought that this was the point at which I thought, actually, I shouldn't be um, carrying on. Um, there are also, I think, really difficult questions about the ethical responsibilities of doctors if, um, if the if the treatment is incredibly unlikely to work. Um, because women, if, if women are told that treatment is basically futile, but the doctor is nonetheless willing to provide it, that's a really confusing double message. I mean, if the doctor is willing to provide something, the implication from the patient is that it's clinically worth doing. Um, and so I think willingness to treat implies to the, from the point of view of patients that the doctors think this might be likely to work. And this is really, I think this is a really hard issue and there aren't any easy, easy answers here because you could say respecting the autonomy of women means that if a woman wants to keep undergoing cycles that are very unlikely to work then that's up to her. But at the same time I think doctors have an ethical responsibility um, to try to help people in that scenario rather than keeping taking their money when it's um, not likely to have a good outcome. I think on that last point, the debt financing is particularly problematic because the clinic then has a financial interest in failure because that means you have um, people keep coming back. So it's a really hard question. I want to close by saying something about surrogacy briefly. Um, again, there's been some progress here. You used to, in the UK, only be able to get a parental order if you were a married heterosexual couple. Um, that's gone. Now, you can be two people that have to be married, or one person, so single people can also get surrogacy orders. And we may get even more permissive uh, regulation. This Law Commission of England, Wales, and Scottish Law Commission recently published a vast, absolutely vast, um, document including a, a draft bill which proposes changes to the law on surrogacy, the most dramatic of which is a new pathway through which intended parents um, could become parents from birth only if certain conditions are satisfied. It's not at all clear what's going to happen to this uh, proposal and draft bill. Um, definitely nothing's going to happen until after our next general election so just is some parliamentary time uh, i don't know whether any of you have been following british politics of late but it has been slightly chaotic um and so what on earth happens after uh, the next election is anybody's guess right now i keep thinking that 
take us all by surprise. So I think surrogacy and reform of fertility law, um, Tina mentioned that HFA just published a, a paper recommending some changes to fertility law. When this happens, it is anybody's guess, and um, our government seems more keen on sending refugees to Rwanda than they are on doing something about surrogacy, but that's a whole other story. So one thing that has changed in relation to surrogacy, and I think is a really interesting development, is listening to surrogates and hearing their accounts of the experience. And some years ago, when the Royal Commissions launched their, said they were going to do this work, so they haven't done any work yet, they just, they just had announced that surrogacy was in their programme of law reform. There was a most extraordinary conference um, that I went to in London where Mary Warnock spoke and Margot Grazier, and those were two women who had um, been the authors of reports that were very sceptical about surrogacy. Um, Grazier report from 1998, Warnock report from 1984. And what they both did in that conference, which was incredibly moving, is they said they thought that they had been wrong about surrogacy, um, that they had seen, they had been looking at surrogacy through their own, um, their own vision of what it was like to be, their own experience of being a mother, and they couldn't imagine being a surrogate mother and, and, and handing a child over for somebody else. But having heard from surrogates about who they might have not have the, um, the kind of life that Mary Warnock had had in terms of gaining satisfaction from, from life, talking about how incredibly fulfilling it could be to help people have a family, um, they said they'd changed their minds about surrogacy. And the Law Commission too, um, in this report, describe in the glossary that they use the term surrogate rather than surrogate mother because that's what surrogates say they wanted. That's not without controversy though, and there's been quite a backlash to the Royal Commission's um, proposals, and there's some very vocal, particularly on Twitter or X, some very vocal opposition to surrogacy. So even if the next government does bring forward draft legislation, there'll be um, opposition undoubtedly to it. So just to close, overall, from my uh, my quick skirt back over 20 years of uh, law and reproduction, I think there have been some examples of real progress. I think mean, attitudes towards same-sex parenthood is completely different than it was 20 years ago. There have been some developments like abortion legalising in Northern Ireland. There have also been some, I think, terribly regressive steps. Uh, obviously, I think Dobbs is one of those. But I also think some of the monitoring and screening of pregnant women in the UK is getting quite um, alarming too. There have also been some, I think, worrying newly identified issues around overselling and uh, racism. So my, my final take home from all of this is I think you just cannot take progress in relation to the protection of reproductive autonomy for granted and that this is likely to be an ongoing fight that will continue for certainly for the rest of my lifetime and probably long into the future doing that. And I'll stop there.